Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the latest installment of the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. I'm your moderator, Joe Brand. As always, we're joined by Tina Martini of McDermott, Will and Emery and Rich Lankoff of Downey and Lankoff. We're gonna start off today's show with the latest of the Tom Brady Giselle saga as the power couple seems to be splitting. With that, we bring in celebrity divorce lawyer, Chris Melcher, partner at Walzer, Melcher and Yoda. In 2021, he was ranked as a top 100 lawyer by the Daily Journal. Follow him on Twitter at CA underscore divorce. Chris, thank you so much for the time today. Thanks for having me. So, Chris, a few weeks ago, news broke that former Victoria's Secret model Giselle Bündchen had hired a divorce lawyer and is on the way to splitting from her husband of 12 years, obviously the very famous Tom Brady. Recent reports indicate that Brady has also lawyered up and that Giselle has been seen leaving her attorney's office within the last couple of days carrying a stack of papers and not wearing her wedding ring. What's the latest? Well, that about summarizes it. We don't know. There's for sure what's happening with the couple. Um, my hope is, as with everyone, that they're going to find a way to continue on as a family. I think that that would just be a wonderful conclusion. But if they're not able to do that, then they need to talk to lawyers and get some advice on how they can split stuff up. Uh, here, I think that the uh, there's so much money, and and she's reported actually to have more than he does, uh, so money won't be an issue. I think it's just the intense public interest in the story makes it very hard for them to operate, and is going to impact the kids. So I think that's probably the more, most complicated aspect of it. So, Chris, to that point, we saw pictures, uh, many pictures of Giselle leaving a building that purportedly housed her divorce attorneys. Um, everyone jumped to the conclusion that that means that she's hired lawyers to represent her in her separation from Tom Brady. I think you've been quoted as saying not so fast just because you might visit a lawyer doesn't mean that you're getting divorced. And actually, you know, it was announced today that Sylvester Stallone is reconciling. He announced yesterday that he's reconciling with his wife, Jennifer Flavin, who just a few weeks ago, seem, seemingly were on the way to divorce because he changed his tattoo. Newsflash, whenever you change your tattoo as a celebrity, it, it's, it doesn't look good for the marriage. Uh, there's some of that involved in this case, by the way. But back to your point, does the fact that she was leaving a building housing divorce lawyers, maybe even seeing divorce lawyers, mean that they're on the way to uh, splitting up? No, no, it doesn't, Rich. And there's there's plenty of couples who will get advice, and that's that's a smart thing to do because if if there are issues going on, they need to understand what this looks like. And even basic questions is is this going to be a public proceeding? Uh, you know, many people don't know the answer to that, and it varies state from state. So they may want to just understand: uh, could they go through this private privately? Would it all be in a public court proceeding? 
They may also be working on a financial divorce. So sometimes a couple has issues around money and uh, they just want a financial split, but they'll stay together. So there's all kinds of reasons. And like I say, it's it's a highly personal thing and it's easy to talk about wanting a divorce, even maybe taking some initial steps like we saw in that other case that you mentioned. But really going forward with it, uh, some people do back out of it. So, Chris, as you mentioned earlier, I mean, we're talking about two people who individually are worth a heck of a lot of money. Brady is reportedly worth at least $250 million. And Giselle's modeling career that spanned over 15 years has made her reportedly worth at least $400 million. And they own substantial marital assets together, including a string of multimillion dollar homes in three different states. So if they divorce, why is it and how is it that the financial aspects, at least, are not as simple as they would be for people who don't have as many types of assets and aren't worth as much as these two people are? I mean, to, to me, the bigger cases are, are easier uh, because... Uh, the risk of making a mistake is not as great as it is in a in a lower asset case. And, and certainly we want to do a great job in all of our cases. But when there's this much money around, uh, no one's going to go without. No one's going to worry about um, their future. And, and so, uh, but with other couples, and actually most couples, you're dealing with... Uh, a finite amount of income that's supporting one family while they're all living together. And now we have to take that same amount of income and same amount of assets and break it up and have two separate households. It's never enough to go around. And those are the cases that kind of worry me more as a lawyer than these. There's so many zeros at the end of this one. They are going to be fine. And, and I'm sure they have all their books and records together and all kinds of financial advisors. So in a way, like I say, these, these are the easy cases, even though they involve a lot of assets and a lot of um, complexity financially. But it's not as if their future is dependent on how this stuff gets divided. So, Chris, all of this is being played out in the media, uh, which you're familiar with, having represented many celebrities going through marital issues. Uh, in fact, Tom Brady has uh, one child with the former actress Bridget Moynihan. He's got a couple with Giselle Bunchen, how does the fact that this is all playing out in front of the cameras and in the press um, raise additional obstacles to its resolution? Again, especially given that there's children involved. Well, it's very painful um, to have all this done publicly. It, it for every divorce, it's a very difficult process for anybody to go through. But then to have it done. Um, out in the media with all the children um, seeing this stuff and their friends seeing it is very, very difficult to navigate through. Again, that's Chris Melcher of Walzer, Melcher and Yoda. You can follow him on Twitter at CA underscore divorce. Chris, thank you so much for the insight and the time today. Thank you. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina 
is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will, and Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Welcome back to the Legal Faceoff podcast. Well, earlier this year, baseball history was accomplished when Yankee Aaron Judge passed Roger Maris as the American League single-season home run king, launching his 62nd homer of the year. Now, what if you caught that ball? We bring in Asher Rubenstein, partner at Gallant Dryer and Berkey. He's got some thoughts on this issue. Asher, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So someone did catch it. Uh, pretty good catch. Uh, a guy named Corey Yeomans, who was a Rangers fan. He caught the ball at the Rangers stadium. So the f- first question, Asher, is who owns the ball? Uh, does the fan who caught it, this Yeomans guy, own it? Or does Major League Baseball own it? Does Judge own it? Do the Yankees? Who owns this really valuable uh, baseball? It's a really interesting question, and in looking into it, there really isn't a big body of case law that analyzes the issue of ownership. Um, I would think that the ball is really the property of Major League Baseball. It probably even says so on the ball itself, if not, um, you know, the the insignia of Major League Baseball. Um, Until it's caught, the fans really have no entitlement to the ball. They have no expectation of ownership of the ball. It's handled by the players on the ball field. Uh, the fans have no access to it, no ownership. But once it's caught, now we have tradition coming into play because in various sports, not only baseball, but in, in, in many sports where something is caught by a spectator, um, the league usually lets the spectator keep it. Um, the league might benefit from that because of there might be media appearances and there'll be publicity over it. But typically there's this expectation or this tradition that if I'm in the stands and I catch a fly ball, it's mine. So, Asher, now that Yelmans has the ball and assuming he can keep the ball, what's the best way for him to protect this asset, which has been valued at at least two million dollars, at least as of earlier this week? Yeah, it's an interesting question. First thing, if they were my client, if 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 Mr. Yamans was my client, I'd say, what do you want to to accomplish? What do you want? What's the what's the goal here with the ball? Do you want to keep it within the family? Do you want to display it? Do you want to sell it? Because depending on the answers to that question, I might have different uh, advice for for the owner of the ball. Let's say that he, you know, this is an important piece of baseball memorabilia, and and the intention is to essentially keep it in the family. And maybe at some point, if the price is high enough to sell it, uh, if you're going to keep it in the family, then you want to own it in a form of ownership where the asset is protected. In that sense, this collectible baseball isn't really that different from any other valuable asset that you might want to keep uh, and preserve for you and your family, like, let's say, a work of art or, or an exotic car or something like that. There are forms of ownership that Mr. Yaman should con- should consider such as, for example, an asset protection trust or a family limited partnership, an FLP, 
registered in the appropriate jurisdiction that that gives uh, very good statutory protection to assets owned within that entity, whether an asset protection trust or a family limited partnership. Yeah, um, Astro, by all accounts, this uh, this gentleman, the fan is actually uh, in finance. So presumably you might be thinking of that already. Perhaps the average fan would not be thinking the way you're thinking. All the more reason as we like to say on the show, sometimes hire a lawyer, right? Um, but what kind of tax implications to that point would be involved in the sale of this ball? So the first thing to keep in mind is that you don't owe anything to the government simply by catching the ball in the in the outfield or, or in the stands and bringing it home and keeping it. That's not a taxable event. The taxable event in the in the vernacular of the IRS is when income is realized. In other words, when you get when you convert the ball to money and you make a profit. That profit is going to be income and it's going to be taxable and you have to report it to the IRS and perhaps whatever state you live in, there are also tax consequences. Uh, but then, so now, I, you know, I've caught this ball in the stands and I'm going to hang on to it and I'm going to sell it for $2 million, let's say. The issue there is going to be for tax purposes, what's my basis? The IRS is going to say, well, you didn't pay anything for this ball, therefore your basis is zero. And you just sold it for $2 million. So the entirety of that sale, i.e. $2 million, is now subject to tax. I might say, no, 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 my basis should be higher. When I caught that ball in the stands on that day, right away, that ball had a collectible value. I don't know if it's worth, let's say, $200,000, $500,000. But there was value that day when Mr. Judge hit it into the, outfit, into the stands. And I would argue to the IRS that that's my basis. And that really kind of shortens the, 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 the difference between basis and profit, which would give rise to a smaller tax consequence. Um, the additional question here is, assuming that it's taxable income, and, and you know, I'm sorry to be a you know, tax geek here, but there are three potential um, rates here. Is it going to be taxed as ordinary income with this fellow that caught it? You mentioned he's in finance. I'd imagine he's at a high tax rate, let's say 39% for ordinary income. Or alternative number two, is it a capital asset? Such Is the ball a capital asset such that when the ball is sold, we should have a capital gains rate applicable, which could be 20% rather than 39%? Or number three, there's a special collectible tax rate. It's 28%, which applies to collectibles. And arguably, this baseball is a collectible. So there's an open issue as to what the basis would be and what the tax rate will be once you figure out the basis. Another interesting tidbit about Yamans is I think that he's married to a former Bachelorette star. So he's actually a famous guy in his own right, in addition to being in finance. So, so Asher, if Yamans were to sell, when do you think is the best time? Is it now since the record is fresh? or at some point in the future, which could be risky, but sometimes investments end up increasing in value over time? Well, I think the key word, Christina, as you said, is risk. And it's really the question of the risk tolerance of the owner. What comes to mind is the phrase, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. So, you know, should he take the $2 million that seems to be the market value today? Or should he take the risk that if he sits on it, six months, a year, or even five years, that he's going to get more than $2 million. Of course, part of the equation is going to be right now, you know, it's in the media, we're talking about it. It's, it's a hot item. 
what happens if, you know, it's not so in the media in a month or in a year, what's that going to translate into the sales price? It kind of reminds me of NFTs. They were so expensive last year. This year, they're not. Asher, last question here on Legal Faceoff. I mean, you deal with this kind of thing every day, not exactly 62, 62nd home run balls, but asset protection, uh, wealth preservation. You know, this is a tangible asset. It's a one single item, right? Um, what's the best course of action for him in terms of preserving this asset, right? Uh, if he loses it, it's gone. If it gets stolen, the value's gone. So, um, you know, we see a lot of cases, for example, the recent lottery winner, record lottery winner just outside of Illinois here, uh, bought the ticket at a gas station, still hasn't come forward. Uh, there's a good reason for that because they're exposing themselves to risk by, by coming forward, right? Not only from people they know, but people who they might not know who want to prey on them. So what would be your advice to someone like this who has a single, tangible, incredibly valuable asset? Well, first issue is going to be who, who, who or how are you going to actually custody and care for the asset? Where is it going to be kept? Are you going to keep this in your home where there's the risk of theft or, or fire, for example? Or are you going to put it in a safe deposit box, for example, where that risk is minimized? You should also, of course, take out insurance for this asset, just as you would for any other uh, expensive, valuable, collectible asset. Um, beyond that, i.e., you know, the physical custody, care, and insurance of the asset, you go back to what I said earlier in terms of what's the best form of ownership. If you own it individually in your own name and you have legal issues or creditor threats or you harm somebody in the future and get sued, that asset, the baseball, is going to be at risk just like all your other assets, whether it's cash in the bank or, or, or other uh, assets. Therefore, the form of ownership is important. And I go back to what I said earlier with regards to an asset protection trust or a family limited partnership, because ownership in those entities, rather than in one's individual name, make it very difficult for somebody to try to get the asset from you. And Joe, you'll, you'll weigh in on this because, you know, this is your day job. In this case, it was really clear that he caught the ball, that Yeoman's caught the ball, right? I mean, there is a famous situation of Barry Bonds 73rd home run you know almost 20 over 20 years ago where it was unclear who the actual uh, catcher was and they went to litigation so one piece of advice I saw in the same story where you were quoted Asher is make yourself visible right I mean hold that ball up to the camera make sure that it's unquestionably certified on video that you're the one who caught it because you don't want someone else to come out of the woodwork and say oh I actually I'm the one who caught the ball that's right. Absolutely. You want to hold it up to, to you know, and, 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 and this happens. You see this in baseball games where somebody in the stands catches something. They hold it up and they hold it in front of the camera and they do it at all angles. Just right. so that All the cameras that are present in the stadium can capture the shot. It goes to authentication. It goes to ownership. And it's a great idea. So what's your favorite home run call that you've made of all time? You've done major league, minor league. What's your number one? What's your favorite home run call? And number two, what would you have done had you been called? Calling judge a sec 60 second. Uh, well, I got to do one big league game this past year, and Tim Anderson swung at the first pitch and homered. So that was pretty cool. Uh, definitely go down with that. Um, I don't know. I was thinking about taking a road trip and, and trying to, to snap <laughs> historic home run. Actually, I have a question quickly for Asher. How you mentioned the IRS uh, would say that it cost you nothing to get the ball. Could you justify, could you make the claim that, hey, I paid money for tickets, for travel? Maybe you were you were trying to go to some previous games. Could you make that claim if you wanted to? Yeah, you could make that claim that the cost of the entry ticket, but what is that, $125 right, at best? Right. Um, versus, so, and then, yeah, so the spread is now 
not zero to the $2 million that you got in, in when you sold the ball. It's 125 to the $2 million. It's still a significant tax bite. Well, my next question was going to be, could you justify, well, I needed a few beers in me to, to work up the courage to catch that ball. So. Joe was just asking for a friend. Yes, a million dollars in beer. <laughs> awesome. Asher, great stuff. Thanks so much for joining us here on Legal Faceoff. Thank you. Great to be here. Moving along in the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio, David Enrich has a new book out, Servants of the Damned, Giant Law Firms, Donald Trump, and the Corruption of Justice. We have the author and business investigations editor at the New York Times, David Enrich, here on the Legal Faceoff podcast. David, thank you so much for the time today. My pleasure. So, David, last month, your latest book, Servants of the Damned, hit shelves, and it's been touted as the first investigative work of its kind in the legal industry, at least, and it takes a look at big law and the rapid growth of many large law firms and the evolution of that competitive landscape, which has been attributed at least in part to the launch of the American lawyer and notions such as profits per partner. You focus on one firm in particular, Jones Day. What made you decide to write this book and why now? Well, I've been covering business and finance for like 20 years now, and basically every big business or financial scandal I have covered over the years, there has been one or more big corporate law firms lurking in the background. And so I've been kind of fascinated by this space for a while. I've been really interested in the way these law firms wield power, not just in terms of representing their clients in a court or even in a government investigation, but also with the media and kind of the strong arm tactics I've witnessed these law firms using to kind of silence criticism, and in some cases, censor stories, in my opinion. And so I've been kind of mulling this over for many years. And then in 2020, uh, I realized that Jones Day, this law firm in Cleveland that I've never spent a whole lot of time thinking about, honestly, was deeply enmeshed in Trump world with the Trump campaigns, with the Trump administration. And this just struck me as kind of this nexus that was really interesting to me between my longtime fascination with the big law firms and now this the work that this particular law firm was doing in Trump world at a time when, you know, there was a real threat to democracy in a lot of ways. And so here we are. David, talk to us more a little bit about that connection that you found out and how deeply it went, the connection between Jones Day and the Trump campaign and then, of course, his presidency. Yeah, very deep is the short answer. And so uh, Jones Day has been representing the Trump campaign since early 2015 at a time when, you know, no one was taking the campaign that seriously, uh, in part because no one took Trump that seriously. And Jones Day's role at that point was to really help uh, the this fledgling campaign gain credibility in kind of the right wing of the Republican Party. And they did that in part by coming up with the idea that Trump should come up with a list of possible Supreme Court nominees, publicly release it. And so Jones Day helped drop this list along with the Federalist Society. And it, it basically went from there. And, and in the early on in the Trump administration, there were dozens of Jones Day lawyers who joined the administration, including the White House counsel, Don McGahn, and uh, the uh, Solicitor General, Noel Francisco, many others as well. And so the, the the law firm and the Trump administration were, it was kind of hard to tell where one's interests ended and the others 
began, and they continued representing the Trump campaign through 2020, even as some of the most senior people at the firm were expressing kind of graver and graver concerns about the unhinged and kind of reckless rhetoric that the president was using on the campaign trail. So it was a very kind of hand-in-hand relationship over a pretty long period of time. David, I just want to follow up quickly on on that point, which is really an interesting one that I don't think most of the public understands. Um, You know, one of the lasting legacies of the Trump presidency, unquestionably, as we're seeing literally this week, is his placement of three ultra-conservative justices on the Supreme Court, all of whom are young, are likely to be there for 30 or 40 years. You know, I think we all knew about the Federalist Society uh, assistance in drafting that list, but I don't. I personally didn't know about Jones Day's involvement. Um, you know, yeah. is that something that is fairly unprecedented in presidential history and appointment history? Did, did your did your reporting reveal? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the relationship, the extensive nature of the relationship between Jones Day and the Trump administration is probably without precedent. I mean, it's common for both Democratic and Republican administrations to attract personnel from the ranks of big corporate law firms. But the sheer number of people that went from Jones Day to the Trump administration, I think, is unprecedented. And the power that they wielded inside the White House in particular was really extraordinary. I mean, Jones Day, once in future Jones Day lawyers, including but not limited to Don McGahn, were single-handedly in charge of President Trump's judicial nominations. And, you know, you mentioned the three uh, Supreme Court the Supreme Court uh, justices that were appointed by Trump. But it's much more than that, right? I mean, like a quarter of the federal appellate bench was turned over during the Trump era. Uh, many more district court judges. So really up and down the federal uh, judiciary, you can see the fingerprints of Jones Day's once and future partners. And in fact, you can see quite a few Jones Day lawyers themselves who have now who scored lifetime appointments to the federal bench. So, David, you mentioned earlier that you've been keeping your finger on the pulse of these types of issues for a long time. So in doing your research for this book, was there anything either with regard to Jones Day beyond what you just profiled or any other stories from big law that you found particularly surprising or shocking? Yeah, yeah, there is a lot. And the thing that I I think the kind of the moment that this all crystallized for me is, you know, I've heard so many times, and I'm sure you all have as well, that the kind of the, the rote defense that a law for a big law firm will make to defending a, a polarizing client is that, you know, under the American Constitution and our justice system, everyone is entitled to a robust legal defense. And look, that is definitely true, at least if ever, certainly everyone who's accused of wrongdoing is entitled to a robust legal defense. But the argument kind of starts to fall apart the more you look at it in a lot of the situations that big corporate law firms now work today. And you know, we have an adversarial justice system where both sides are supposed to be represented by zealous, ambitious, aggressive lawyers. And then it's left to dispassionate juries and judges to sort out fact from fiction, settle on the truth and settle, settle on a just outcome. That system completely breaks down, though, when there's not an equilibrium between the two sides in these court cases. And what I found over and over and over again is that you have situations where people, normal human beings, are hurt by a company's products or are somehow hurt by a company's actions. And they have what seems, based on the law and based on academic research and sometimes based on science, seems like a very strong, almost unimpeachable case. They go into court against a big law firm like Jones Day or many other big law firms that have, for all intents and purposes, unlimited financial and kind of personnel resources and time 
and they just get steamrolled. And this, this, this notion of this adversarial justice we have, it's, it hinges on there being some sense of equilibrium between the two parties. And we've really lost that today, I think, in large part, thanks to the rise of these mega law firms. David, um, we know from reporting in the last few days that there is some discord among the Trump legal team uh, that are representing him in the um, uh, investigation into him taking secured documents to Mar-a-Lago. We also know from your colleague, in fact, Maggie Haberman, on the, one of the Sunday shows that she said Trump must be worried about the current investigations because he has paid a record $3 million retainer to uh, his lawyers, perhaps some at Jones Day. Um, given all this, are there still people at Jones Day who can see through this, who can understand maybe what's right and wrong? Or are we at the point, given this relationship, that, listen, they're paying him. He does deserve zealous representation. There's no question. And there is, you know, uh, the idea that someone at Jones Day is going to stop and say, is this really the right way to handle these issues? Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Well, there's been a, just since 2020, there's been a pretty loud internal uprising inside Jones Day about a lot of the work that they were doing for the Trump campaign, which, by the way, is not work that normally would fit under even a pretty expansive definition of the legal services to, some, to, to which someone is you know, legally or ethically entitled, by the way. But in any case, I, th I think Jones Day is my sense is that they are kind of tiptoeing away from representing Trump himself or the Trump campaign itself. That said, they have fully embedded at this point with kind of Trumpism. And they're representing and current candidates like Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, Dr. Oz, Kevin McCarthy, all people who have thrown their lot very forcefully into this kind of Trump cookie cutter mold. And so I think as we see, like as the 22 elections come and go, and then as 2024 starts to take place, you know, there's a Jones Day, a recent Jones Day alumni who is Ron DeSantis's chief of staff, for example. And we're going to see this kind of Jones Day diaspora start to, I think, work very much in the law firm's favor as a new crop of candidates services and starts vying for the presidency. So just one follow up on that. And because it's so lucrative and because there's so much money involved, um, does Jones Day not really put much concern in the effect that their representation of the ex-president, and to your point that they are fully embedded in Trumpism, are they not concerned about how that might affect the representation of other clients and also their reputation out there in the market? It sounds like they're beyond that because of the money involved, because how big and powerful they are. Yeah, I actually don't even think it's that much about the money in this case. I mean, I think the legal fees that they're drawing from Representative Trump or any other political candidate are pretty modest in the considering this is a firm that's pulling in well over $2 billion a year in revenue. To me, I think what they see as the advantage is that they can then go to some of the most controversial corporate clients they have, companies like Purdue Pharma or R.J. Reynolds, the tobacco company, or Smith & Wesson, the gun company, and say, look, a lot of other law firms are going to run away from you because they don't like the uh, they don't like representing companies like you that are afraid of the public backlash. We, as you get, as evidenced by our our longstanding and continuing work for Trumpism, are not that shy. We do not care that much about the meat what the media thinks of us or what the public thinks of us in general. We are going to stand by you, and I think that that may well become Jones Day's calling card here. And in it, with a certain class of companies, that's a very persuasive argument to make. And so, I, I would not be surprised at all to see Jones Day, at least in terms of some of the kind of the riskiest 
but also most lucrative work that a big law firms can do, representing litigation-prone companies that are really at risk, uh, facing an existential crisis. Jones Day, I would not be surprised, could get a bunch more work, that type of work. One last question, David, real quick. What kind of response have you gotten from folks um, of various demographics, whether it's Jones Day, other big law folks that are um, journalists? What kind of response have you gotten? I've gotten really good feedback from uh, and certainly from really all all manner of people, ranging from people who have had experiences going up against big law firms, a lot of kind of refugees from big law who now work in academic or other jobs have really have said that they were really happy to see someone finally write this book. The reaction from Inside Jones Day has been a little less positive, as you can <laughs> imagine, and they uh yeah they're not super happy with me they they wrote an op-ed in the wall street journal a couple weeks ago that struck me as kind of unhinged but they're certainly uh you know they don't like me very much right now david that point i just want to conclude and joe's gonna um get us out of here but that that point you made earlier so so interesting that uh jones a is embracing this not really uh as a uh revenue source as much as just this is part of the calling card to go out to other clients and market yourself as you know the premier law firm handling risky um you know clients or risky situations and we know that there are many they're they're not ending right mm-hmm. I mean, especially given all the yeah. litigation we're seeing with you know some big corporations that's a really interesting point that i hope our listeners can take away from the interview so i appreciate that that's my pleasure Again, that's David Enrich, business investigations editor at the New York Times. Check out his new book, Servants of the Damned, Giant Law Firms, Donald Trump, and the Corruption of Justice. David, thank you so much for the time today. Thanks for having me. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey & Lenkoff, a firm with offices in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's, and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois super lawyer from 2015 to present and leading lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. Rich is also a producer with credits including 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon, Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. In addition to hosting WGN's Legal Faceoff since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey and & Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com. It's time for the Legal Grab Bag here on the Legal Faceoff podcast, and we bring in one of our guests, Rachel Fizay, co-founder and managing partner of Zweibach, Fizay, and Zelduendo. Rachel, a returning guest here on the Legal Grab Bag segment of the podcast. Great to see you. Thanks for coming back to us. Thanks so much for having me. Tina, let's start off with our first topic. The president pardons pot possessors. I won't say that five times. Yeah, Joe. So last Thursday, millions of people's dreams came true. President Joe Biden announced that he will pardon those who have been convicted of simple marijuana possession under federal or D.C. law. 
The pardon is not going to apply to state court convictions and is not going to protect those who have been convicted of or will be convicted of marijuana offenses in D.C. or federally after October 6th. It's also not going to apply to non-citizens who are here illegally at the time of the offense. The interesting twist here is that the pardons are not going to be automatic. There will be an application procedure that U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland is developing, and he will also be reviewing those pardon applications. So the pardon is not going to be automatic, and those who qualify will receive a certificate of pardon. The issue relating to marijuana and how it's been classified goes back 50 years. It's been classified as a Schedule I controlled substance, which is the same classification that's given to LSD and heroin and has been historically reserved for the most dangerous drugs. There will be a review of how best to classify marijuana in the context of other drugs, especially given what we've been seeing over the past few years with the overdose epidemic. Um, the presidential pardon doesn't mean people are innocent or expunge the conviction. It does remove civil disabilities, such as the right to vote and to hold office. Um, and it can also be helpful in obtaining a job or some licenses. I think the question now that people are asking, Rich, is whether we're actually going to see the legalization on a federal level of marijuana anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, certainly this is the first step uh, towards that. Um, the trend, obviously, nationwide has been, you know, the last several years, uh, decriminalization of marijuana, recreational marijuana. Um, so there certainly seems to be will out there for this. Many have opposed that, you know, for various reasons. You can't look at this, I don't think, Rachel, without looking at the politics of it. Of course, we're on the verge of midterm elections, and uh, Joe Biden did run partially on this. And this is definitely a nod to the progressive wing of the party, um, you know, uh, many of whom are not happy with a lot of Biden's decisions lately. So I think this is a bit of a, you know, some red meat to that more liberal side of the Democrat Party as people go vote in the next few weeks. I agree with you. This is a nod to more progressive politics. I live in California. Obviously, everyone's always confused about marijuana rules out here and what state law and federal law in our district. They don't prosecute uh, simple marijuana offenses, although it is still on the books as illegal. I think the exceptions that Biden has made to this burden, including that you have to apply for it, makes it a little bit weaker, slightly tepid as it relates to really getting rid of all of the charges that people have suffered in the past. So while it's two steps forward, maybe it's one step backward for what people might actually want, but it does look like everybody's starting to get on the same page with state law, federal laws, and we're going to get rid of the possession of marijuana at some point in time. So there's a perception that, you know, marijuana is uh, these days not something that the government should get involved in, that it's so innocuous and, you know, it's so pervasive that it shouldn't be criminalized, certainly shouldn't be regulated. On the other hand, many think that it is still a dangerous drug. There are many studies that show it does have effects, especially on young people's, people's brains, and perhaps can be a gateway drug 
So you're a young person. Give us your perspective on uh, decriminalization of marijuana. What are you talking about? What all the young kids? You are a young person too, Rachel, for sure. What what all the young kids are talking about weed these days? Yeah. Being brought in here for this. Um, Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, Heck, 10 years ago, you know, it was such a far-fetched idea. And now it's been quickly ramping up so much. And I, I think it comes down to all the money that, you know, states are profiting off of something like this. I, I think they're starting to realize it. And, I mean, isn't the main factor is they have a difficult time of regulating how much marijuana you have consumed, smoked, however you want to say. You know, when, when you get pulled over for drunk driving, there's a breathalyzer and it can tell how much that you've actually drank or how inebriated you are. I don't think you can really do that yet with marijuana as far as, as far as I know. So maybe that's some of the holdback, but otherwise, you know, I really don't see why it shouldn't be looked at just like alcohol. And we know for sure that if anyone on this planet has their finger on the pulse of America's youth, dagnabbit, it's Joe Biden. (laughs) Us Joe B's really know what's going on. uh, (laughs) In, in the young world. I mean, I got my backwards hat on right now. I feel like I could talk to anybody if I wanted to. Uh, Rich, let's move on to the Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey trials, a couple of trials that we've been following along with. Yeah, I mean, both of them are uh, are, are on trial right now. Harvey Weinstein trial, uh, Rachel, in your neck of the woods is, is starting. Um, and uh, Kevin Spacey, is being sued civilly. So, you know, there, there are two lawsuits or two trials going on. One, of course, is criminal. That's the Harvey Weinstein trial where he stands accused of uh, sexually assaulting several women in L.A. This is, of course, after he was, he was convicted uh, in New York of, of similar crimes. Uh, on the other hand, uh, an actor is suing Kevin Spacey civilly for uh, alleged groping and alleged, alleged sexual uh, harassment on the set of a uh, of a project they were working on together. So I think, Tina, what this shows is that even though we might be beyond the really newsworthy Me Too events over the last six or seven years, um, to their credit, prosecutors and uh, in this case, a civil plaintiff are still pursuing these actions. And I think that's obviously a good sign, right? We don't want this to ever uh, go back to the way it was, where someone like Harvey Weinstein could yield his power uh, to um, you know, sexually harass and, in fact, sexually assault dozens, if not way more women. So good news. I think uh, you know Harvey Weinstein will probably be convicted again. Um, and I think Kevin Spacey, his defenses so far seem and pretty weak civilly. We'll get Rachel in on this in a moment, but Tina, what are your thoughts on them? I agree. I mean, I think when we look at the landscape of the Me Too movement over the last six to seven years, I think a lot of us would agree that these two folks, Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey, their cases and their circumstances seem to be a lot more egregious than some others. And so I agree with you, Rich. The fact that these cases, both civil as well as criminal, continue to move forward, notwithstanding the evolving landscape of these cases, I think does indicate that there is still a desire to prosecute these cases, especially where um, where there are multitudes of victims that are coming coming forth and are making allegations of some pretty awful behavior. Rachel, there's a film 
called She Said, which fictionalizes the work of two New York Times reporters uh, and their stories on Weinstein, which is set to be released midway through the trial in about a month. Weinstein's attorneys have said that the proceedings should be delayed because the publicity surrounding the film would prejudice a jury, a potential jury, against Weinstein. So my question is, could anything really prejudice people more against Harvey Weinstein than he already is? I mean, it's, a, it's kind of an uphill battle to say that um, my client has a stellar reputation that otherwise is marred by this one film. He's Harvey Weinstein. His name is synonymous with lecherous criminal activity. Yeah, you know, this is Harvey Weinstein being Harvey Weinstein and having a lot of money to defend a case that he probably should have just pled out by now because he doesn't have a ton to lose at this point. Um, maybe he's looking for things to do, but it doesn't feel like he has a real shot of winning as this goes forward if the facts are anything like the facts were in New York. So. This this feels like a fight without real hope, but maybe just, you know, really he's sticking to his guns here. Alicia, what are your thoughts on um, the Anthony Rapp trial? That is, of course, a civil uh, case against Kevin Spacey. Um, Kevin Spacey, you know, uh, is thankfully out of the news by now. Anthony Rapp, though, I think to his credit, is still pursuing this allegation that Kevin Spacey assaulted him on, on this project they were working on together. What are your thoughts on this one? I think the outcome of this case will be important to alleged victims of sexual crimes and to their pursuit of these allegations as the years pass. So this is a set of allegations that arose in 1986. So before the internet before smartphones, certainly before the Me Too era. Um, and Rap says, this is what happened and I want to stand up and I want to pursue my rights. So we, we know that the sexual assault claim has been removed. So that case was, excuse me, that charge was dismissed. And while I think this case is interesting, Another issue related to it that I think people should be keeping track of is the House of Cards producers seeking mm -hmm. damages from Spacey. While this is an important case to follow for certain, I think the outcome of that has really significant potential consequences to the entertainment industry as these types of claims move forward. Yeah, that's a really interesting aspect for sure. Um, to what extent does an actor who is involved with, connected to allegations like this, convicted of it, found liable, to what extent does that result in damages to production company, a TV show, a movie that would otherwise not be able to exploit that actor in the in the way that was intended, in, in the way that was contracted for? So I agree with you. That's a really important and significant part of this. And especially in the age that we're living in, if you talk to anybody who works with productions or works with athletes, entertainers, and brands, morals clauses and contracts have shifted so broadly over the last few decades. And so I think a lot of lawyers are going to be following what happens in the pursuit of damages by the House of Cards producers against Kevin Spacey. Because if they're successful in securing those damages, 
we're going to see even greater rewriting of morals clauses in these various contracts that govern the entertainment and sport industries. The voice that you hear is Alicia Jessup, Associate Professor of Sports Administration at Seaver College of Pepperdine University. She joins us here on Legal Grab Bag. On this very sports-centric episode of Legal Faceoff today, Rich, because we now move on to the Draymond Green scuffle with his teammate Jordan Poole. Yeah, we all saw the video. I mean, most of us saw the video. That was a, a little different part of this story. Wait, we've It's not new to have reports of players fighting each other in practice and locker rooms and dugouts, whatever. Um, we don't often see video, especially as clear as this was. So the Warriors, of course, have announced that they are looking into who took that video and will take appropriate action, including potential criminal action against that individual. But the reason I wanted to discuss it on today's show from a legal perspective is, you know, to what extent might there be liability civilly and criminally for not just Draymond Green, but for the Warriors, for security, um, for anyone else, right? Uh, what if Draymond, what if um, Jordan Poole presses charges? Uh, what if he sues Draymond Green civilly? You know, this was a pretty serious punch. I mean, there are punches like this that literally kill people. We've covered them on our story. So uh, thankfully, Jordan Poole is okay. I think he had a, I think he led the, the, the team in scoring over the weekend. I think he scored like 25 points after this. So apparently is okay. But what if he wasn't? Or what if he still decides to pursue something criminally against Draymond Green? What are the implications for the team? There's certainly liability in lots of different respects. Um, civilly, you know, he could allege that there was inadequate security, especially Tina, because Draymond Green is not a rookie to this kind of event. Uh, he has a history of fighting with teammates. He was actually convicted of assault way back in the day uh, in, in, uh, in a fan-involved incident. So if I was him, I would be, if I was Jordan Poole, the victim, I would be considering a civil action against Draymond Green. Um, you know, it only takes one punch to change your career. There was a famous case involving a player named uh, uh, Kermit Washington. Rudy Tom Tom Jovanovich, uh, Rudy Tom Vonovich punched him, and literally Kermit Washington never played another game in the NBA after that. So these kind of things can change careers. I don't think Jordan Poole will do that, but lots of legal uh, implications in this punch, Tina. Yeah, no, I agree with you, Rich, and I think you did a really nice job of breaking it down. I mean, my guess is when you look at the press around what happened, um, you know, there's been, you know, coaches and other players who have come out who have said what a great team it is, how cohesive it is, how supportive everybody's been, that they're getting past it and so forth, which I think is about as positive a spin as you can put on it. My guess, though, is behind the scenes, there is stuff going on that is probably never going to come to light in terms of conversations being had. This is really, I mean, this is a defining moment here, I think. Um, everybody's on notice from here on out to the extent they weren't before, and I'd say they were before, but I'd say this is an inflection point, and I think that the team needs to make it very clear that certain behavior is and is not tolerated because... Who knows what the next time is going to look like if there is a next time. And I think, you know, it's incumbent upon the team to try to do what it can to make sure there is no next time. Professor, this is in your wheelhouse, right? In addition to teaching sports law, uh, you write for The Athletic. I was a little surprised about the Warriors' reaction. I thought, especially what given what Tina just said, in today's day and age, right, especially considering player safety, 
We just saw, you know, concussion protocol change in the NFL uh, in the wake of the the Tua Tunnego, the Tua case. Um, I was a little surprised with how they reacted and that they didn't suspend him, fire him, do something more, and they allowed him to take a self-imposed leave of absence from the team. What are your thoughts on all of that? Well, I'm Samoan, so it's Tagovailoa. We have a lot of vowels in our names. It's hard. Um, But regarding the Draymond situation, I think it's on display that one of the most dysfunctional parts of sports. And we, we see fights every preseason in the NFL where people on the same team are getting into these massive brawls. And coaches love it because they're like, oh, this is the grittiness of our team. My team is willing to do anything to win. And I kind of think that's what you're seeing in this warrior situation. You usually don't see the same type of rhetoric in basketball that you do football. But throughout his career, Draymond Green has been described as this fiery, passionate, invigorated individual. And that's how Bob Meyer and others around the team are lightly passing off this incident. So related to Jordan Poole and his potential for bringing a criminal complaint in this case, I think that's highly unlikely. We have to remember that Jordan Poole is approaching free agency this season. And yeah, what happened to him was really unfortunate and it really should not have happened. But I don't think he wants to disrupt the water anymore by bringing a criminal charge against his own teammate. So I think this will likely be water under the bridge. But I think it speaks loudly to the Warriors' reaction And without getting into too much trouble with the organization, if I was Jordan Poole, I would be thinking about the reaction of this team that instead of the team saying, you know what, we're going to pursue criminal charges or we're going to demand, and maybe they have behind the scenes. We don't know because they're keeping a lot of this internal, but we're going to require Draymond Green to get anger management training. They said, no, we're going to go after the person who released the video. And so if I'm Jordan Poole, I'm looking at this situation and maybe there's things going on behind the scenes. We don't know. We're not privy to that. I'm looking at the situation and saying, huh, do these people really care about me or are they protecting the bigger fish yeah, in the current You're, you're more spot? worried about what's on the video than the fact that I was punched on the video. You're, you're more worried about keeping this secret than preventing it or, or, or disciplining someone involved. Rachel, if we took this to the private sector, I mean, Let's let's replace Jordan Poole and Draymond Green with two Warriors employees, right? Uh, would this be tolerated? Would you be able to punch someone in the face at your workplace and then take a self-imposed leave of absence and not face any discipline? No way. That this is not what would be happening, and the organization would be so worried and out of their mind that they wouldn't know what to do with themselves. They would have a team of lawyers addressing the situation. I would imagine that person would be terminated on the spot. Um, And then they would see what they could do to make sure that that employee didn't sue them. So if you're inside of a normal workplace, this is being addressed a whole lot different than it's being addressed because of the players being who they are. And the team is just hoping to shove, shove it under the rug and, and address it internally. And that Jordan Poole, will go along with the program knowing that he has a career ahead of him, knowing that anything that he does 
could potentially hurt his career. And all of those factors are coming into play in how the Warriors management are handling this situation. And Joe, let's also swap in a different scenario. Let's say in place of uh, uh, Jordan Poole, we're talking Steph Curry, the biggest star on the team and one of the top you know, three or four stars in the NBA is the handle is a situation handled differently if he's the victim of the punch? I think it's handled differently right from the get-go. Uh, like Alicia brought up, this happens in the NFL preseason pretty much every year. It happens in a lot of sports, though, too. I remember in 2007, Cubs catcher Michael Barrett went after Carlos Zambrano, and it happened in the dugout. A few months later, Michael Barrett was traded. Usually, these things the, the person in the wrong ends up being moved out. It might take a while. It might take until the offseason. But usually that's what happens. I understand how important Draymond Green is for the Warriors. And how about that? This whole thing is a little ironic considering this is the Warriors that this happened to. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I do think after a while it will sort of settle in terms of who was completely in the wrong gets a little bit more exposed in this type of situation. So, Tina, why don't we move to another story that we've been following since the inception, and it comes with somewhat of a resolution. Alec Baldwin settling with the family of the Hutchins family, who was tragically killed on set. Yeah, Joe. So, as you said, we've been following this pretty closely. It's been nearly a year uh, since the shooting on the set of Rust, which left the cinematographer Helena Hutchins dead from a gunshot wound and wounded the director Joel Souza. Last week, Alec Baldwin settled that lawsuit that was filed by Hutchins' family last February. The lawsuit accused Baldwin and others involved in the film of reckless behavior and in taking on cost-cutting measures that they said led to the shooting. While the financial terms have not been released, Hutchins' widower, Matthew Hutchins, has now been named as an executive producer for the movie and is expected to resume filming in January with Sousa agreeing to resume his role as the director. Um, everyone involved with the movie, at least for the time being, those who are going to continue with the movie seem to be committed to honoring Hutchins' memory and generally getting along. This is all, however, against the backdrop, as we've discussed in, in prior episodes of the show, about the possibility of a criminal prosecution in the case. And the New Mexico Board of Finance just approved a special budget for the DA's office to pursue the criminal charges in this case. And they said they're prepared to do so against as many as four people, and that None of the ongoing civil suits and those settlements are going to weigh on the decision to pursue criminal charges. There are a number, a number of suits that are still ongoing. We've talked about the suit against the movie sets armorer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed. Her lawyer says he's hopeful that a settlement will be reached soon and hopefully will not arise um, to criminal charges. Mamie Mitchell, who is represented by one of our personally favorite guests, Gloria Allred, uh, was the script supervisor. She was actually right next to Hutchins when she got shot. She is going to continue to pursue her own civil suit and is not going to be returning to the set. So, Rich, the saga continues. Um, not surprised at all that Alec Baldwin settled his case, but I think this is going to be going on for at least a bit longer. I mean, listen, I mean, 
in our system of, of civil um, litigation, money is the way to compensate people for loss. Unfortunately, you can't bring this woman back to her husband or her, or her son. So, you know, that's the way these cases generally go. So I'm glad that at least that part of um, these survivors uh, pain and suffering is over partially. Um, the fact that he is a producer on the film, I haven't seen that too much before. That's a little unusual, you know, but uh, listen, I mean, I think uh, he deserves and the family deserves anything they can get. Um, so I'm glad that part is over. As to your point as to criminal liability ongoing for Alec Baldwin and others involved, it's always interesting. I mean, I, I don't know to what extent a civil prosecutor, they will tell, I mean, a criminal prosecutor, they will tell you that there is no impact on a civil settlement on their criminal action. On the other hand, it must weigh in their decision, right? I mean, it's taken them so long to go forward and we haven't even seen criminal charges yet. Part of the idea behind bringing a criminal case would be to make someone pay, to make someone liable. And if Alec Baldwin is liable, albeit in a civil way, it's got to play some role in their in their discussions. I don't know, Rachel, you have a lot of experience in this area. Does that impact the prosecutor at all? Or are they, as they say they are, completely oblivious to any civil uh, settlements? So I would take it a different way, Rich, as I handle a lot of parallel civil cases and government investigations. And what was about to happen here is discovery. And the criminal prosecutors have not made a decision yet. They have not said they are not going to charge. In fact, they look a bit like they are going to charge. They just got a budget so that they could pursue the case. This was the exact right time for Alec Baldwin and the producers to settle so that they are not giving the free information known as discovery that goes immediately to the prosecutor. They, their hands were tied. They absolutely had to settle at this point because anything that they do inside of the civil case hurts them criminally. And anything that they don't do, including taking the fifth, which you have a right to do in the civil case, there then becomes this adverse inference against you as you go forward. And so then you really don't have much of an opportunity to win the civil case. So I think this settlement was done timing-wise because they were getting scared they were going to be charged. Rich, you know the old saying, don't mess with Texas or their hot sauce. One man is taking legal action after a hot sauce company for misidentifying exactly where the hot sauce is created. Texas Pete, not actually made in Texas, according to this, this complaint. And, you know, major, major, major uh, legal problems involved here. Uh, this California resident named Philip White purchased a bottle of Texas Pete's at a, uh, a Ralph's in September of 2021. He thought it was made in Texas. Go figure. It says Texas right there in the bottle. And uh, when he got home, he read the label and he realized that it was not in Texas. It was made in Louisiana. The horror that this man must have faced, the damages, the absolute pain and suffering and psychological trauma and PTSD from finding out that his hot sauce was not made where the label uh, uh, said it was must have been excessive. So he, uh, he filed a lawsuit. And he said that, Tina, the, uh, the makers knowingly capitalized on consumers' desire to partake in the culture and authentic cuisine of one of the most, it's hard to say without laughing, one of the most prideful states in America. Um, 
Again, the label on the back says it was manufactured. Well, it was manufactured in North Carolina. Um, and uh, there's also, what's the Louisiana component? I thought it was Louisiana. Who knows? Yeah, he's probably thinking there's, of Louisiana hot sauce. Right? There's, there's multiple. No, I thought there was Louisiana involved in this also because, uh, oh, it's Louisiana style. So I guess there was lots of different <laughs> confusion here because it was made in North Carolina. It was Louisiana style, but it said Texas on the label. Um, so, Tina, like many consumer actions we've seen in the past, this gentleman is alleging that he suffered some damages as, as a result of this confusion. And, you know, it's his job to clean up this confusion. You know, as the trademark lawyer here, I really don't want to dominate the conversation, but all I can say is, wow, 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 wow. Okay, so Texas Pete's has been around, oh, I don't know, about 100 years. Um, and also, not to get too trademark geeky on this, but I just don't think this slide rises to the level of deception. I mean, I think if we did a canvas of brands out there where you juxtapose somebody's name with a location, I don't think people necessarily think that the product emanates from the place that the person's name, like, you know, Panama Jack, Texas Pete, you know, I just... I mean, there's a there's a certainly a very high standard for deception and fraud when it comes to brands. And especially given that this brand has been around. Also, I don't think the consumers, I don't think that the vast majority of consumers drive their purchasing decisions thinking that there is actually a Texas Pete from Texas who's behind this. And the label clearly indicated where the product is manufactured. So I will stop talking now and let our guests jump in. Alicia, do you like hot sauce, number one? And are you going to now only buy your hot sauce based on where you think it's manufactured? Now, listen, I love hot sauce. And so I was surprised to find out that the hot sauce industry is a $3 billion revenue generating industry. So I guess there's a lot of us out there. I live in California. I live in Los Angeles. These days with politics being the way that they are, there is not too much interplay between Texas and California. So I kind of find it surprising that this California man was so interested in a product from Texas that is based on a Louisiana form of sauce yet produced in North Carolina. So I agree with Tina. This is a pretty tenuous case. I'm curious how damages are asserted in this case. Um, and I never want to disparage another attorney, but in the world that we're living in and all of the problems that exist in the world, this is the problem you wanted to tackle. It's a little surprising. Hey, Joe, I got I got a newsflash. Uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to file a couple of lawsuits because um, uh, Aunt Jemima, it was not my aunt. Um, Dr. Pepper was a terrible physician and uh, Captain Crunch. Terrible. I mean, apparently so bad at naval law that he never made it past the rank of captain. Shouldn't Captain Crunch be like an admiral by now? So lots of deceptive advertising apparently going on out there that we we should pursue. And uh, Uncle Ben wasn't really your uncle either, right? Is well, that's actually incorrect. And Uncle Ben was my uh, my okay. uh, my uncle, and uh, I stand to inherit a fortune in, in rice. We we've had we had the guy on who what sued because ice cream wasn't as vanilla as they said it was supposed to be. We've covered the 
McDonald's not putting hot on the cup of coffee that you purchase. I can kind of somewhat understand those. This one can't wrap my head around whatsoever. Uh, and as Alicia said, you know, how do you prioritize this as the first thing to tackle? Speaking of tackling, how about Monday Night Football uh, last week? I was actually sitting with my friends watching that game. And literally right after that happened, my one buddy says, you know, that, that fan could actually sue Bobby Wagner. And I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, because Bobby Wagner has no right to tackle him out in the field. Hopefully that's going to change after this, Rich, because this seems also pretty absurd. God bless America. You could you could run on the field. That's the Canadian. <laughs> act a fool, run around with some pink smoke, get tackled, and then turn around and file a police report. And yeah, he might. This guy, I would not be surprised at all if uh, this guy files a uh, complaint, a lawsuit against the Rams, against Bobby Wagner, against lots of people for, you know, the audacity in stopping him from his uh, his rampage on the field. Why would you not? Why would you? Why would you feel like uh, tackling is appropriate? But yeah, this guy ran on the field. He was protesting something or, or representing something, running around with pink smoke. And Bobby Wagner, former All Pro uh, uh, linebacker, took him down. You know, great tackle, put him on the ground until security came and took him away. Uh, a job that security obviously should have done. Um, but listen, when you enter the field of play, this is their workplace. We talked earlier about protecting your workplace and liability there. Bobby Wagner was well within his rights and actually doing, as he has now said, a public service in taking this idiot down. Uh, again, the legal story that we're covering is he, this fan, has now turned around and filed a police report against Bobby Wagner. Maybe he'll file a lawsuit like we talked about. Tina, the fact that he filed a police report doesn't mean much. Doesn't mean anyone could file a police report for anything. Doesn't mean he, Bobby Wagner will be prosecuted. But again, wild times when uh, you could act this way and then uh, have the audacity to file a police report. I agree with you, Rich. I mean, there's a certain level of decorum that is expected when you are a fan at a an event. Um, I'm sure that when you read that like language on the back of a ticket and just the rules of going into a stadium, you are sort of held to a, cer a certain standard of behavior. Um, I mean, in this day and age, especially after some of the horrible tragedies we've seen um, with people doing crazy things, especially in mass gatherings. I, I mean, I, I don't see how this guy could have thought for a moment that this was not going to be expected. That whether it was the police taking him down or a player taking him down after he's running on the field someplace where he clearly doesn't belong, what did he expect? Yeah, and Rachel, I think that language should be revised on the back of the ticket to include the fact that warning, a 245-pound linebacker <laughs> might tackle you. Right, and what is that linebacker thinking? Well, he's thinking he's defending his co-workers, his stadium, he doesn't know what's going to happen. He has a reasonable belief, reasonable belief that when somebody is running across the field or trying to run across the field that should not be there, that there could be harm. So he has a pretty solid defense of others' um, defense to any type of charge that could ever be brought. I do not think anything will ever be brought. Same with any kind of civil suit that would be brought. It's ridiculous. Alicia, you see any liability here for Bobby Wagner, for the team, for anyone? I think Bobby Wagner is a hero. And I really appreciate what he said because what my colleagues here have pointed to, we have to remember 
that in 2017, I believe the NFL instituted a clear bag policy because there was a perceived threat. And so when you see someone running onto a field with smoke, it's a little disconcerting. And I really appreciate the fact that Bobby Wagner stood up, stepped up, and he didn't know the risk that he was entering into. He didn't know who this person was that was on the field. So I think along with the defense that uh, Rachel noted, there's also an assumption of the risk defense. When you trespass onto property in an NFL game and run across a live televised event that is being competed in by 300 pound individuals, you assume the risk that one of those individuals is going to tackle you if they think you're causing harm and being dangerous. I mean, again, there was smoke here. So I think if we're going to talk about criminal complaints as well, the Rams and the league should look at filing trespass charges against this individual because fans are not invited on to the field of play. Yeah, and it would, I think, limit that. I mean, the NFL does everything in its power to prevent that from happening. They don't televise it. That's why you always hear those radio calls. And uh, I feel like if any type of NFL player is just available to tackle you, I think that would limit how many trespassers and protesters we get. Uh, Tina, let's cap it all off with Queen B, who's apparently too sexy to deal with right said Fred. So, Joe, I love this story. So we've talked many times on this show about musicians who don't get permission and then they get sued for sampling and copyright infringement and how more often than not, they get it wrong. In this case, Beyonce said she did everything right and right said Fred is still pummeling her. So over the summer, Beyonce released her seventh album, Renaissance, and the group Right Said Fred, which a lot of us who were listening to Top 40 in the late 80s and early 90s will remember well, they're accusing her of inappropriately sampling their hit song, I'm Too Sexy, on her song, Alien Superstar. Her song includes a riff that's similar to the chorus of I'm Too Sexy. Right said Fred saying in their song, I'm too sexy for my shirt, which I'm sure we'll all remember well. And Beyonce sings, I'm too classy for this world and I'm too classy to be touched. So Right said Fred claims that Beyonce never asked them for permission to use this riff and blamed her being arrogant as the reason why she didn't ask for permission. Well, Queen B being who she is, she's not going to have any of that. And she says that not only did she get permission, she paid for permission, has the receipt to prove it. And that, in fact, Wright said Fred spoke of their gratitude publicly for her paying homage to them on her album. She also takes offense to their insults and is accusing them of defamation. So, Rich, I think this story is pretty funny. You'd think that people would actually get the facts straight before they start accusing somebody of infringement. And she says she has a receipt like she's returning a vacuum. Attorney. <laughs> <laughs> she went to the corner like, store and got permission. <laughs> like, like, you just buy, right? I'm too sexy and then have it on like a, a long like Walgreens receipt or something. That was the part that stopped me the most. Aren't there, I don't know, lawyers involved? And I don't know. Like... Actual contracts, you would think. Let me show you. I just want to see that. I want to see that receipt. Yeah, I want to see Beyonce tweeting. Like, what else is on that receipt? Is like Kaja Gugu on there? Is Flock of Seagulls? Maybe it was like three for one day at uh, the 90s, uh, you know, music sampling store or something. But I don't know. 
I'm just glad we got a chance to bring back right said Fred, the great, great, one of the great, one of the only examples of two bald guys. As a bald guy, I'm going to say we're, we're underrepresented in the music industry. Uh, it's the rare case of not one, but two bald superstars with a hit song. I defy you to name any others in music. I mean, Simon and Garfunkel were kind of balding, you know? Not, not, not bald like those guys. <laughs> nah, these guys were OG bald guys before it was sexy. There you go. Uh, Rachel, you love Right Said Fred. We know that. <laughs> I, I think you did it. I think I think Right Said Fred is bringing himself back, and he's thinking, "This is my time. <laughs> this is what I've been waiting for." Well, wait a second, you're, you're committing years. you're committing the age old mistake when you talk about duos. There's always one guy who's more famous uh, than George Michael. You're saying he as if there's not there's the other guy. Don't <laughs> right? just, don't don't diss the other guy. You're pulling an Andrew Ridgely. I think Sad and Fred are both coming back with it. Who's and the other guy? <laughs> the Alicia, do you know the do you know the other guy? Who's the other guy? The non-Fred guy. Yeah, I, I don't know, but I definitely have some takes on this case. It's it's pretty interesting. Um, so that I, I used to great, in, Yeah, it, share them. Yeah, so I used to work in podcast, publishing and I think if Beyonce is correct and that they secured the music licensing rights through contract, which would allow her to have those receipts, then she does have a valid defamation claim against the artist to write said Fred. We have to remember that when Renaissance came out, Diane Warren, one of the greatest songwriters of all time, criticized Beyonce. She looked at some of the tracks on that album and said, how do you get 26 songwriters on one song? Well, this is how hip hop and this genre of music is created. It's created very collaboratively where they sample others' music and you don't become Queen B without understanding business. And so if you're sampling others' music, I under I would assume that Beyonce has a pretty robust legal team within her own music publishing arm who's ensuring that the rights are being cleared and secured properly. So I think right said Fred got themselves in a little bit of hot water. And, you know, I was about six years old when that song came out and my mom wouldn't let me listen to it because it had the word sexy in it. So things have really changed. Rich, wow. I think we should ask our guests who their, fam- their favorite duos out of the 80s and 90s were. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good one. Let's go. Let's go around the horn. I was going to ask everyone your favorite Right Said Fred song, but then whoever's after the first is impossible. <laughs> yeah. Joe, go, Joe, you're going to lead us off. Favorite, what do you say, 80s and 90s du- duos, huh? Yeah. Joe, I'm like, right, we're going to let you all think about it because that's a little harder for Rachel. Favorite uh, 80s Nelly. or 90s duos? Millie Vanilli. Oh, good one. Speaking, speaking of fakes, uh, uh, Alicia. Mine's a trio. It's TLC. Nice. Oh, another another uh, legally interesting uh, group. TLC. Lisa Left Eye Lopes burned down burned down Andre Drummond's uh, house. Former On Andre Rison. Andre Andre, Andre Rison. Was the child then? That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, Andre Rison. Uh, Tina, favorite 80s or 90s duo or apparently trio? So I'm going to go with 80s. It's neck and neck between Naked Eyes and Tears for Fears. Wow. Well, those are good ones. I got to go with uh, 
both Hall and Oates. Um, also the award of best uh, mustache Afro combination of the 80s. Uh, See, I Joe, think of them as 70s, but you're right. They were great too. Okay. Well, yeah, Rich just stole mine. So maybe I should have gone second through third rather than uh, first or last. The White Stripes, is that 2000s? Is, is, that's 2000s. Uh, I'm sure they had yeah. an album in the 90s. All right, all right, we'll go with that. Or, or Salt and Pepper. I don't know if that was a duo. Ooh. Ooh. Push it. All right. Push it real right. good, Jim. <laughs> and by the way, we're back to the sex. Let's talk about sex, Joe. Let's go. Uh, that's all the time we've got for today on Legal Face Off. <laughs> I, I think I think Alicia summed it up best. You can't be Queen B if you don't know anything about business. So I, I think that's one quote we should all take home with ourselves. Uh, big thanks to Rachel and Alicia here on the Legal Grab Bag and the Legal Face Off podcast. Big thanks to our earlier guests of Asher Rubenstein, David Enrich, and Chris Melcher. Another big thanks to our producers, Yvonne Barbosa, Ben Anderson. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share the Legal Face Off podcast. Please do us a favor and give us five stars as well. For Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff, I'm Joe Brand. You've been listening to the Legal Face-Off Podcast, and we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. It's Christina Martini and Rich Lenkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face-Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question, just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget the...